0: To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support buddha or visit Wisdom.com, where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more.
1: Sawadee kap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're in volume 8 of this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. The title of this book is The Foremost Householder. We've been studying chapters related to teachings specifically for those interested to get to enlightenment who are living in the household lifestyle. We're finishing out our book today with the last 11 chapters. We normally study 10 chapters per class, but today we're studying 11. So we're finishing out this book. And then next week, we're going to be starting volume nine, which is The Six Sense Bases chapters 1 through 10. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today, whether you're joining for the first time or you've been joining regularly, and I'd like to invite you to study along with us. If you've read these chapters prior to class or after class, this really helps you because You can come to class with questions, and you also see other details in the chapter besides just the words of the Buddha. But even if you haven't studied these books, you can still study along in our class because what we do is I typically invite someone in Zoom to read the chapter, and then after someone reads the chapter, I will share teachings on that specific chapter and then open up to any and all questions that you guys have before moving off to the next chapter. So you guys are welcome as we go to ask any and all questions that you like by putting those in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. In Zoom you had the added feature of electronically raising your hand and asking any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I'll see if there's anyone in Zoom who would like to read the first chapter which is chapter 31. If you'd like to read you can just raise your hand electronically and I'll be able to see that here and then I'll be able to call on you and allow you to go ahead and read the chapter and then afterwards I will share some teachings on that particular chapter. Okay, I'm not seeing anyone in Zoom raising their hands. I think you guys might like it when I I read. But if anybody would like to chime in at any point and offer to read, to give my voice a little bit of a break, you're welcome to do that. Just raise your hand electronically and I'll be able to see that and then be able to call on you to be able to read any of the chapters. So this first one is chapter 31. It's titled, Even More Fruitful Than Giving. If, householder, one gives alms, rough or excellent, and one gives disrespectfully, gives inconsiderately, does not give with one's own hand, gives what would be discarded, gives without a view of future consequences. Then, wherever the result of that gift is produced, for one, one's mind does not incline toward the enjoyment of superb food, nor toward the enjoyment of superb clothing, nor toward the enjoyment of superb vehicles, nor toward the enjoyment of whatever is superb among the five objects of sensual pleasure. Also, one's children and wives, and one's slaves, servants, and workers do not want to listen to one, do not lend an ear, and do not apply their minds to understand. For what reason? Just this is the result of actions that are done disrespectfully. If, householder, one gives alms, whether rough or excellent, and one gives respectfully, gives considerately, gives with one's own hand, gives what would not be discarded, gives with a view of future consequences, then, wherever the result of that gift is produced for one, one's mind inclines toward the enjoyment of superb food toward the enjoyment of superb clothing, toward the enjoyment of superb vehicles, toward the enjoyments of whatever is superb among the five objects of central pleasure. Also, one's children and wives and one's slaves, servants, and workers want to listen to one, lend an ear, and apply their minds to understand. For what reason? Just this is the result of actions that are done respectfully. In the past householder, there was a Brahmin named Vallama. He gave such a great alms offering as this. 84,000 golden bowls filled with silver. 84,000 silver bowls filled with gold. 84,000 bronze bowls filled with bullion. Eighty-four thousand elephants with golden ornaments, golden banners, covered with nets of gold thread. Eighty-four thousand chariots with upholstery of lion skins, tiger skins, leopard skins, and saffron-dyed blankets with golden ornaments, golden banners, covered with nets of gold thread. Eighty-four thousand milk cows with jute tethers in bronze pails. 84,000 maidens adorned with jeweled earrings, 84,000 couches spread with rugs, blankets, and covers, with excellent coverings of antelope hide, with canopies and red bolsters at both ends, 84,000 katas of cloth made of fine linen, fine silk, fine wool, and fine cotton. How much more of food drink, snacks, meals, refreshments, and beverages, it seemed to be flowing like rivers. You might think, householder, he was someone else, the Brahmin Velama, Velama, I'm not sure what that name is, who on that occasion gave that great alms offering. But you should not look at it in such a way. I myself was the Brahmin Velama, who on that occasion gave that great alms offering now householder at that alms offering there was no one worthy of offerings no one who purified the offering even more fruitful than the great alms offering that the Brahman Valama gave would it be to feed one person accomplished in view even more fruitful than the great alms offering that the Brahma Valama gave in feeding a hundred persons accomplished in view would it be to feed a once-returner? Even more fruitful than the great alms offering that Brahmin Valamai gave in feeding a hundred once-returners, would it be to feed one non-returner? Even more fruitful than the great alms offering that the Brahma Valamai gave in feeding a hundred non-returners, would it be to feed one arahant? Even more fruitful than the great alms offering that the Brahmin Valama gave in feeding a hundred Arahants would it be to feed one Paka Buddha. Even more fruitful than the great alms offering that the Brahmin Valama gave in feeding a hundred Paka Buddhas would it be to feed the Tathagata, the Arahant, the perfectly enlightened one. Would it be to feed the community of monks headed by the Buddha? Would it be to build a dwelling dedicated to the community of the Four Quarters? Would it be for one with a mind of confidence to go for refuge to the Buddha, the teachings, and the community? Would it be for one with a mind of confidence to undertake the five training precepts, to abstain from the destruction of life, to abstain from taking what is not given, to abstain from sexual misconduct, to abstain from false speech? to abstain from liquor, wine, and intoxicants, substances that cause heedlessness, the basis for heedlessness. As great as all this might be, it would be even more fruitful if one would develop a mind of loving-kindness, even for the time it takes to pull a cow's udder. As great as all that might be, it would be even more fruitful if one would develop the perception of impermanence, just for the time of a finger snap. Okay, let me explain to you guys this discourse here. The first part, by the way, this whole chapter is all about generosity and also improving the quality of the mind through practicing certain teachings. So, the first part that the Buddha is describing here is he's talking about someone who makes an offering and that does it disrespectfully. Generosity is an important part of the teachings of the Buddha because generosity helps to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. You're going to need to learn how to give and share and practice generosity with the people around you in making different offerings and different gifts, not only to various people around you, but even for the continuation of the teachings of the Buddha, this helps you to train your mind to let go and no longer be selfish and holding on tightly. And what the Buddha is describing here is one who gives disrespectfully, that because of this disrespectful giving or inconsiderate nature of one in the way that they make offerings and Practice generosity that because of this, that their children, their wives and their employees essentially are going to also not be respectful to them because what you choose to do in your life, the people around you are learning from that. So if you choose to be disrespectful to people around you, your children, your life partner, your employees, your coworkers, people around you see you being disrespectful, now they're going to be disrespectful to you. This is your karma. This is the results of your decisions. So the Buddha here ultimately shares that if you practice generosity respectfully and you're doing that in a respectful manner. then. Because of that, the people around you will be respectful to you. This is the first thing that he's sharing here. And remember, generosity was important because it's eliminating the primary cause of discontent feelings. You wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without practicing generosity, because the primary cause of the discontent feelings is craving, desire, attachment. So as long as the mind's holding on tightly and it hasn't been trained to let go, you're not going to be able to get to enlightenment. So you're going to need to develop a well-developed practice of generosity. And also remember that the Buddha didn't teach generosity in order for him to become enriched or wealthy or anything like that because he was already wealthy at one time. He was a prince destined to become a king, a member of a royal family. So when he stepped away from the royal family, he just had robes. And a bowl. He walked down the street and accepted whatever food was given to him. He slept in whoever's house, offered him a place to sleep, and he provided teachings so that people then provided him the basic necessities that he needed to sustain his life. So he's teaching you generosity because he saw with his own mind that that's what was important in order to get to enlightenment. And here he's actually talking about an offering that he made all this enormous offering of 84,000 golden bowls filled with silver and all these others, he ultimately explains this enormous offering. And then he basically explains that this was him that made this offering in a past life. He talks about how generosity led to him being able to get to enlightenment as a Buddha in his last life. Remember, a Buddha is an individual who is able to get to enlightenment by themselves without any teachers or any guides. And then they dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their independently discovered teachings with others. And they preserve their teachings so that countless people can get to enlightenment after their death. So people get to enlightenment While they're alive, there's just countless people that get to enlightenment, and then there's countless people who get to enlightenment after they die based on a Buddha sharing their teachings. But also a Buddha can observe their past lives, and they know how... They experienced various rebirths in the past, and they've accumulated certain wisdom over the course of many, many lives that led to them being able to get to enlightenment in their last life. And he talks in multiple teachings, not here necessarily, but he talks in other teachings about how generosity in his previous lives, in his last life, was a primary factor that led to him being able to get to enlightenment as a Buddha. And that's what he's also essentially sharing here as well. But then he talks about making these offerings to various people. This first one he talks about is making an offering to an individual who's accomplished in view. This is essentially an individual who's attained the first stage of enlightenment as a stream enter. And he's saying, if you made an offering to 100 people who are accomplished in view, That this wouldn't be as beneficial as making an offering to one person who was a once returner so he goes through the various stages of enlightenment here and explaining this that you know if you made an offering to a hundred once returners it wouldn't be as beneficial as one person who's a non-returner this is the third stage of enlightenment and feeding a hundred non-returners wouldn't be as beneficial as an otter hunt and so forth The reason why he's sharing this is that there's not anything mystical or magical about making an offering to an enlightened being because an otter hunt is an enlightened being. The stream enter is the first stage of enlightenment. A once returner is the second stage. The non returner is the third stage and an otter hunt is the fourth stage where the mind is actually enlightened. There isn't anything mystical or magical about making an offering to an enlightened being. The benefit is, of course, when you practice generosity with anybody, you are experiencing the ability to train the mind to eliminate selfishness, where you can eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And by making offerings to people who are in one of the four stages of enlightenment, you're helping to support that individual to be able to share teachings if they're actually a teacher, and they're able to then share teachings with other people to be able to get to enlightenment. But the third thing that you're getting when you're making an offering to somebody in one of the four stages of enlightenment, and here we're just highlighting an enlightened being as an hunt, is that you're coming in contact with an individual who's either in the first, second, third, or fourth stage of enlightenment. And that gives you the ability to ask them questions and to gain wisdom about what it takes to be able to get to enlightenment. So the Buddha goes on from here and saying, you know, not only would it be, really beneficial to feed an arahant, but feeding a hundred arahants, a hundred enlightened beings, wouldn't be as beneficial as feeding a Pakachata Buddha, or however this is pronounced. What this is, is this is an individual who gets to enlightenment by themselves and chooses not to share their teachings of what it takes to get to enlightenment. So the Buddha that we know of, Gautama Buddha, he was not that. He was a Tathagata. He was a perfectly enlightened one. He's an hunt, which is enlightened, but he chose to share his teachings. That's the difference between this type of kata buddha and a actual buddha. A buddha is an individual who gets to enlightenment by themselves. They dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their teachings and countless people get to enlightenment. And then they preserve their teachings in such a way that countless more people can get to enlightenment. So the buddha is showing you the increased levels of Of benefit to you by feeding one of these individuals or by making an offering to one of these individuals because now you're coming in contact with an actual Buddha perhaps if you're living during the lifetime of a Buddha and you can make an offering to an actual Buddha you're coming into contact with that person to be able to get wisdom on how to actually attain enlightenment yourself and then the Buddha talks about the community headed by the Buddha building a dwelling for the actual community going to refuge with the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, or the Buddha, the teachings in the community. This is the confidence that you have in the actual community. And then he even talks about another higher quality of wholesome gama is to practice the five precepts, where you're not killing, stealing, having sexual misconduct, having false speech, or taking substances that cause heedlessness. And you would need to study the five precepts using the words of the Buddha because it's not black and white. You need to be able to see with clarity what is the actual teachings that the Buddha is sharing on the five precepts. And then what I do in volume one, chapter seven, is I share with you what it takes to apply that to your daily life. The Buddha is talking here about studying and practicing the five precepts. And if you study the five precepts using the words of the Buddha, you can see that it's not black and white, that you can actually understand the words of the Buddha on the five precepts where he's illuminating the path to enlightenment and helping you to be able to see how to apply the teachings that he shares in real life. Because the five precepts, they're not rules or commandments. It's Teachings that will help you to understand the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect. That when you do things like killing, stealing, having sexual misconduct, you're lying, or taking substances that cause heedlessness, this is going to cause harm in the world. So therefore, harm is going to come back to you. And by you learning the five precepts and choosing to practice them, this is producing a higher and higher quality of gamma. And that's what the Buddha is describing to you here in terms of making offerings. He's showing you how to increase higher and higher levels of your wholesome karma. And then ultimately what he gets to is he's saying that practicing loving kindness meditation is very fruitful for you. It's producing this high quality of gamma because you're reducing the amount of anger, hatred, ill will in the mind. And now there's less anger, hatred, and ill will in the mind, and there's less that's going to come out through your intentions, your speech, and your actions. And now you can take care of ensuring that you're not causing harm through your anger, hatred, and ill will through your intentions, speech, and actions. And then, ultimately, the highest quality of gama that the Buddha is describing that you can actually produce is practicing breathing mindfulness meditation. Here, he's describing it as developing the perception of impermanence just for the time of a finger snap. This is how you develop that is through your breathing mindfulness meditation. Of course, you need to study the universal truth of impermanence. You need to reflect on it to see that it's true looking around the world, and then you need to practice it. And by practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, when you're focused on the breath and the mind goes off the breath, you're cutting off any thoughts that arise and bringing the mind back to the breath. So if you're having any thoughts, or if you hear a sound, or if there's something that's going on during your meditation, if you can understand that this sound is impermanent, and it's not possible for you to have permanent quietness, or a certain lighting condition, or a certain smell or odor in the room, all these things are all impermanent. So your meditation is helping you to be able to develop that. So here, the Buddha is explaining to you how to increase to get higher and higher levels of wholesome gamma. of course generosity is needed practicing the five precepts is needed practicing loving kindness meditation is needed and breathing mindfulness meditation is needed all these things are needed but he's just helping you to see the higher and higher qualities of gamma because the less harm that you're causing the more beneficial it is for you and all those in the world around you. Thus, it's producing higher and higher amounts of wholesome karma or the results of your decision. So that's why by training your mind with breathing mindfulness meditation, with loving kindness, and by practicing the five precepts, which is what he's talking about here, this is really high quality karma for you because you're causing less and less harm and less and less harm is coming back to you. So let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter. You can put this into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. All right, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So I'm going to go on to the next chapter, which is chapter 32. This one is titled, A Great Gift. Monks, here, a noble disciple having abandoned the destruction of life, abstains from the destruction of life. By abstaining from the destruction of life, the noble disciple gives to an immeasurable number of beings freedom from fear, hostility, and harm. He himself in turn enjoys immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and harm. This is the first gift, a great gift, highest, of long-standing, traditional, ancient, untainted, and never before tainted, which is not being tainted, and will not be tainted, not refused by wise aesthetics and Brahmins. This is the stream of merit, stream of wholesome, nutriment of peacefulness, heavenly, ripening peacefulness, conducive to heaven, that leads to what is aspired for, needed and agreeable, to one's welfare and peacefulness. The other four precepts, which are abstaining from taking of what is not given, abstaining from sexual misconduct, abstaining from lying, and abstaining from consuming substances that cause heedlessness, are repeated with the Buddha's guidance. There are, monks, these five gifts, great gifts, highest, of long-standing, traditional, ancient, untainted, and never before tainted, which are not being tainted and will not be tainted, not refused by wise aesthetics in Brahmins. So here what the Buddha is explaining is that by you practicing the five precepts, you are giving this great gift to the world, essentially, to all other beings. Because when you choose to not destroy life, you're giving this immeasurable number of beings freedom from fear of being killed, freedom from hostility and aggression or harm. Oftentimes when we look at practicing something like the five precepts, someone might be a little bit unmotivated or kind of complacent in their practice of something like the five precepts when they're first getting started. But here the Buddha is helping you to kind of reframe your perspective to help you understand that you're not just practicing the five precepts for yourself, you're practicing these for other people. Because by you choosing to cause less and less harm through not killing, stealing, having sexual misconduct, lying and taking substances that cause heedlessness you're giving this great gift of freedom from fear hostility and harm to other beings and this is very beneficial for the world and for your own life because less and less harm is coming back to you he also talks about how this leads to this peacefulness because when you are practicing harmlessness you don't have to be scared you don't have to be fearful so by you giving others freedom from fear hostility and harm you are free from those same things too because when you gain wisdom of the natural law of gamma of cause and effect and you know that you've gone one month three months one year two years three years and you haven't been harming any beings whatsoever then you know that there's no harm that's going to come back to you By the time you get to enlightenment, your life is so peaceful and so joyful. Of course, your mind is peaceful and joyful as well. But everything around you is just really peaceful and at ease. So by you choosing to gain wisdom and practice in such a way that your life and your mind can be peaceful and joyful, you're also getting this peace and joy because you're not causing harm to others. So harm is not coming back to you. Whereas if you were killing, stealing, Having sexual misconduct, lying, and taking substances that cause heedlessness, your life is not going to be peaceful. Here, the Buddha is talking about how these things are conducive to heaven. It's important to remember that the guidance that the Buddha is giving is all about getting to enlightenment. That's the whole path is to get to enlightenment, where your mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer experiencing discontentedness and as a result of getting to enlightenment, there will not be any more rebirth. You won't be coming back into the world to experience continuous rebirth. During the lifetime of the Buddha, a household practitioner had a much more challenging time to get to enlightenment than we have nowadays. During the lifetime of the Buddha, household practitioners had to do a lot of work just to sustain their life and get basic necessities. It could take you a whole day just to carry water from the well to your house and kind of fill up your containers around your house just to have water. And you might have needed to do that two or three times a week. And that was an enormous amount of work. Not only that, but the cleaning and the planting of food and harvesting food and preparing food and clothing and all these other things was very challenging nowadays we can just walk over and turn on a faucet or we can walk down to the restaurant and get some food so we've really mastered things like water systems food systems having clothing and things like this so much so that we have all this extra time in our life that some people might choose to fill it up with unbeneficial things But if you clear out those unbeneficial things, you'll find that you have quite a bit of time to do things like studying the teachings, to meditate, to go to retreats and courses and get private guidance from a teacher and things like this. So nowadays, we have a lot more ability to get to enlightenment as a household practitioner than they did even during the lifetime of the Buddha. The same things that lead to enlightenment are the same things that lead to rebirth and improved existence. So oftentimes when the Buddha was teaching household practitioners, he was kind of guiding them to understand what leads to a different existence other than maybe their current existence and some people look at being reborn in the heavenly realm as an improved existence i don't necessarily consider it that because the heavenly realm those beings oftentimes are complacent and they lack motivation to be able to learn and practice and get to enlightenment where here in the human realm it's the ideal existence because we experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant, so we tend to have built-in motivation, where in the heavenly realm, they only experience pleasant feelings, so they oftentimes lack motivation to be able to get to the enlightened mind and actually attain enlightenment. But the Buddha was tending to guide household practitioners in a way that he explains to them what it takes to get to enlightenment but if for some reason they fall short of that, which oftentimes household practitioners did during the lifetime of the Buddha, he helped them to understand that the same things that lead to enlightenment are also gonna lead to this rebirth in the heavenly world. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, there were people who were household practitioners that got to enlightenment, but mostly he was kind of helping the household practitioners understand that if they felt short of enlightenment, then they would experience this rebirth in the heavenly world. So here the Buddha is helping you to see how practicing the five precepts is a great gift that you can give to individuals and you're giving them freedom from fear, hostility, and harm. And keep in mind that everything that the Buddha taught in one way or another is coming back to elimination of the 10 fetters. The Buddha explains 10 individual pollutions in the mind of the unenlightened being. And these 10 individual pollutions is what's keeping the mind trapped in the unenlightened state. By eliminating these 10 fetters, that's what produces the qualities of the enlightened mind. So whenever you see the Buddha talking about being tainted, or something of that nature. He's talking about pollution of the mind. He's talking about defilements. He's talking about what's holding you back, keeping you in the unenlightened state. So if you can get to an untainted mind, or you can get to an unpolluted mind, a purified mind, this is the enlightened mental state. So here he's using this language to help you see that the five precepts And practicing those actually helps you to eliminate the ten fetters and the pollutions. So things like choosing not to kill, this helps you to eliminate the fetter or the taint or the pollution of ill will. Practicing something like eliminating stealing or sexual misconduct or lying or intoxicants, this helps you to eliminate the fetter of central desire. Oftentimes, when an individual is stealing, they have this central desire where they're trying to crave and crave and crave, and they want something that they maybe can't afford, so they steal it. Or they're having sexual misconduct where there's a certain central desire to have sex with multiple people. Or if you're lying, typically if an individual is lying, it's out of selfish pursuits based in craving, central desires. And the same thing with taking substances that cause heedlessness. So even something as simple and straightforward as the five precepts, the Buddha's guiding you to eliminate the 10 fetters and certain fetters that are in there. All of his teachings are guiding you to eliminate those pollutions in one way or another. So here you can see a bit of that in this particular teaching. Let me know what questions you guys have here. Remember, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. All right, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere, so I'm gonna move on to the next chapter, which is chapter, oh, there we got a question from Sophia. Go ahead, Sophia. You can unmute yourself and ask your question.
2: Oh, I just want to read the next chapter.
1: Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, you can read this one. This is chapter 33. Okay. Can you see it on your screen?
2: Yeah, he himself, right? Uh, To be reborn, graceful, rich, and influential. Malika, some women is not prone to anger or often intense frustration, even if she is criticized a lot. She does not lose her temper and become irritated, irritated, hostile, and stubborn. She does not display anger, hatred, and bitterness, and she gives sense to ascetics and bra bra brahmin. Food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, scents and o- ointments, bedding dwellings and lighting and she is without ge- jealous one who does not have jealous resent or feel better about the king honor respect admiration appreciation and, and gratitude given to others when she passes away from us from that state if she comes back to this world Wherever she is reborn, she is beautiful, attractive and graceful, possessing supreme beauty and complexity, rich with with great wealth and property, and influential.
1: All right. Thank you, Sophia. So here the Buddha is talking to a female, so he's addressing this female, this woman. But it's important to understand that whenever you see genders, The Buddha is talking to a specific person, so he's using that gender, but you can apply these teachings to any gender. It doesn't matter whether it's a woman or a male. He's describing the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, and action and result, and it applies to all of us in the same way. It doesn't matter what gender you are. So here he's talking about a woman, but you could easily insert the gender of a male or even a non-gender if somebody doesn't have a specific gender. Nowadays, some people consider themselves non-gender or non-binary gender. So here he's referring to and talking to this woman and saying a woman is not prone to anger or oftentimes having intense frustration. Even if she's criticized a lot, she doesn't lose her temper, become irritated. This is because an individual who can remain calm and collected, they have less and less pollution in their mind. If somebody, he's been training in these teachings using breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, practicing things like generosity and these other things, you'll notice that there's less and less anger in your mind, less and less frustration. And he's describing that ultimately this woman is going to be reborn more beautiful, attractive, graceful, having a beautiful complexion, rich and with great wealth and property and influential. Well, remember that The goal of this path isn't to be reborn, but the Buddha is just describing the natural law of gamma of cause and effect. Because sometimes you might be sitting back, you might be looking at another person and thinking that they're so beautiful, they're so rich, you know, why them and why not me? Well, the Buddha is explaining to you the natural law of gamma of how things work in the world that it's cause and effect or action and result. It's not punishment and rewards. It's the results of your decisions. It's not mystical or magical things. It's the results of your decisions. That here, if an individual is training their mind and and they're less angry and less frustrated or less hostile, of course they're going to have a more beautiful appearance. Have you ever looked at yourself in the mirror when you're angry? You probably look pretty ugly, right? So if you went around throughout your life being angry and frustrated and irritated and stubborn and hostile and having a temper, you would look pretty ugly in this life. And then as you're being reborn into a future life you're going to look ugly in that life too. And that's what the Buddha is explaining to you as the natural law of karma, So you can see the truth for yourself. Then he's talking here about generosity. This individual is practicing generosity, sharing gifts with aesthetics and Brahmins. These are teachers who are helping people get to a better way of life, essentially ordained practitioners and Brahmins or Hindu priests. So nowadays we share offerings with teachers because teachers give up their worldly life in order to help share the teachings with others. And if you're practicing generosity, this is automatically going to have less craving in your mind with less craving. You're going to have less anger. So this is why this individual has less anger and hostility because she's practicing generosity. She's also practicing what we call sympathetic joy. What sympathetic joy is, is joy for others' success, even if you didn't contribute to it. It's the exact opposite of jealousy or envy. So here he's talking about somebody else who has gained honor, respect, admiration, appreciation, and gratitude. Other people are sharing that with that other person. But yet this person is not jealous because if you have sympathetic joy, you have joy for other success, no matter what they're experiencing. If they have a bigger house, if they have a car, if they're going on a trip or a holiday, even if you want those things to yourself it's important to have sympathetic joy and not walk around with jealousy. An enlightened being isn't going to have jealousy and envy. They're going to have joy for others' success, sympathetic joy, even if they didn't contribute to that success. So the Buddha is explaining this individual who has less anger, Right, that this person has eliminated a certain amount of anger. They're practicing generosity, so they're eliminating a certain amount of craving, and they're practicing sympathetic joy. And as a result of this, he's explaining the natural law of gama that wherever this person passes away, if they come back, because this person could be enlightened as well, and they're not coming back, but if they come back to this world, this individual is going to be born beautiful, attractive, graceful, with supreme beauty and complexion, rich with great wealth and property and influential. And remember, that's not the goal of this path. The goal is to get to enlightenment and escape this whole cycle of rebirth. But the Buddha is explaining to you why there's people in the world that have these certain qualities. And there you can understand that this is based on decisions that they've made in previous lives, as well as decisions that they're making in this life as well. Because even if somebody's born into this world that is beautiful, attractive, graceful, possessing beauty, rich, wealthy, and influential, if they make unwise decisions in this life, they're not going to maintain those qualities. So by cultivating wisdom, you can maintain these qualities if you were born into the world with these qualities. Or if you were born into the world without these qualities, by you choosing to practice and train your mind, you can acquire these particular qualities. So let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter, and I'll help you guys. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. All right, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere so I'm going to move on to the next chapter this is chapter 34 it's titled one who respectfully gives timely food monks when a donor gives food he gives the recipient four things what for he gives life beauty peacefulness and strength having given life he receives life whether heavenly or human Having given beauty, he receives of beauty, whether heavenly or human. Having given peacefulness, he receives peacefulness, whether heavenly or human. Having given strength, he receives of strength, whether heavenly or human. Monks, when a donor gives food, he gives the recipients these four things. One who respectfully gives timely food to those mentally disciplined ones who eat what others give, provides them with four things, life, beauty, peacefulness, and strength. The man who gives life and beauty, who gives peacefulness and strength, will obtain long life and fame wherever he is reborn. Okay, let me help you guys understand this one as well. So here, of course, the household practitioners are giving food and clothing and water and shelter and medical care to individuals who are choosing to give up worldly life in order to train their mind and gain lots of wisdom to then be able to give that wisdom back to students. This is the mutual support that the Buddha put in place. That if an individual was a teacher and they also were working on the side, if they were getting more and more to enlightenment, they wouldn't necessarily have a motivation to actually teach, but also they wouldn't have as much time to teach. They wouldn't have as much time to dedicate to cultivating their own wisdom. So by individuals in our community choosing to give up worldly life and give up a career and move into working on their mind and training their mind and cultivating wisdom. We have more wisdom in our community to then be able to give the teachings to others and help people get to enlightenment. So part of that, in order to occur, Individuals need to have certain offerings, and here the Buddha's talking about food, that if you give somebody food, that you're giving life, beauty, peacefulness, and strength, because if somebody's eating food, then they're able to sustain their life, and if somebody's able to nourish the body with healthy food, they're becoming more beautiful. Their appearance is going to be more beautiful versus someone who's hungry and disgruntled. If someone is eating good food, then there's a certain amount of peacefulness and strength that they're able to acquire through eating this food. So what the Buddha is saying is that if you're giving offerings of food, you're giving life, beauty, peacefulness, and strength. And as a result, these are the things that you get back. The way that you get this back is through learning and practicing the teachings. That by you, again, coming in contact with individuals who have given up their worldly life and are dedicated to cultivating wisdom on the path to enlightenment, by you feeding them and choosing to feed them, you're giving this life, beauty the peacefulness and strength but you're also getting that back in terms of wisdom on the path to enlightenment because it helps you to extend your life it helps you to become more beautiful as you learn and practice these teachings you'll notice that as you're getting rid of the pollution in your mind your complexion will become more bright and more vibrant your eyes your skin tone the way that you appear in the world you'll have this more beautiful appearance because when you're more peaceful and you're more joyful, your mind is more radiant and bright. It'll show in your physical appearance. So you're getting this beauty through learning and practicing the teachings to eliminate the pollution of the mind. And you're getting more peacefulness in the mind and in your life. And you're also getting this strength and this vitality, this ambition, because as you get rid of the pollution out of your mind you'll notice that you'll have more energy more initiative more motivation more enthusiasm when your mind's burdened with the pollutions of the mind it can really weigh on you and you can feel very exhausted and lacking energy but as you clear out your mind of the pollutions you'll find more and more strength in the mind and in the body so let me know if you guys have any questions on this particular chapter one who respectfully gives timely food Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So I'm going to move on to the next chapter, which is 35. Okay, so here the title is, The entire holy life is wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, wholesome comradeship. And how, Ananda, does a monk who has a wholesome friend, a wholesome companion, a wholesome comrade, develop and cultivate the noble eightfold path? Here, Ananda, a monk develops right view, which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination, maturing in release. He develops right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination, maturing in release. It is in this way, Ananda, that a monk who has a wholesome friend, a wholesome companion, a wholesome comrade develops and cultivates the Eightfold Path. By the following method too, Ananda, it may be understood how the entire holy life is wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, wholesome comradeship, by relying upon me as a wholesome friend, Ananda, being subject to birth, are freed from birth, being subject to aging. Are freed from aging. Being subject to illness are freed from illness. Being subject to death are freed from death. Being subject to sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair are freed from sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. By this method, too, Ananda, it may be understood how the entire holy life is wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship wholesome comradeship. Okay, so the Buddha here is explaining how when you choose wisely to have wholesome friends and associates, that this is going to help you to cultivate the mind and get closer to enlightenment. If you've ever made choices to be around people who are doing unwholesome things, you might have noticed that your mind tended to lean in that direction too. If you were around people who do substances that cause heedlessness or steal or lie or have sexual misconduct or things like this, you'll notice that your mind tends to do those things too. And then conversely, if you choose to have wholesome friends and associates, coworkers, a life partner, neighbors, and things like this, you will tend to lean towards wholesome things, making wise decisions. Well, the Eightfold Path is the core central teaching that you need in order to get to enlightenment and if you have wholesome friends, you will have a tendency to practice the Eightfold Path more closely. Oftentimes, people meet wholesome friends and companions through their community of Buddhist teachings so that as you're coming to classes or courses, retreats, as you're interacting, you get to meet people who are into cultivating their mind and doing wholesome things. And this is really helpful for your life because you will have a tendency to be influenced by those wholesome things. So that's what the Buddha is explaining to you here is that it's helpful for you to choose to be with wholesome individuals. You're not interested in judging other people and looking down on somebody, but you're also not interested in surrounding yourself with people who are doing unwholesome things. So you need to be skilled and have the ability to look at how an individual is interacting and what they're choosing to do in the world. And then you make choices in your life without denigrating others and looking down on others, but instead maintaining your loving kindness, which is active goodwill, and maintaining your compassion, which is your concern for the misfortune of others. So if you happen to meet a new friend, say like at a smoothie shop or something, and as you guys are talking, this person talks about getting high, or they talk about having sexual misconduct, or you catch them in a few lies or something like this, you can use the five precepts as kind of a guide of individuals who you would like to associate with. Other people might not know what the five precepts are in terms of the way you understand them, but a version of the five precepts are taught by our primary caregivers, typically as we're growing up. Mom, dad, brothers, sisters, grandma, grandpas, aunts, uncles, people like this tend to kind of teach us things like, refraining from killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, and substances that cause heedlessness. So you could actually use the five precepts and your wisdom of those five precepts to kind of compare and contrast what people are sharing with you and whether or not it would be wise for you to associate with individuals like this, including people like your life partner. If you had a company or a corporation Who you choose to be your CEO or your COO in your company is going to determine how successful your company is. This is a strategically important position in your company. Well, the same thing is true about your life. Who you choose as a life partner, if you choose a life partner, or who you choose as a boss or best friends or people like this, these are very important positions in your life and it's important that you don't judge others and look down on them but instead you just use discernment or wise decision making what judgment is is where you try to put yourself above people or below people or you look down on people and you denigrate people and you try to consider what's wholesome and unwholesome for other people Instead, what you would like to do is just observe what other people are choosing to do and how they function, and then just choose whether or not you would like to continue to associate in their life or not. And you can choose to move on from a relationship without thinking negatively of another person and maintaining your loving kindness and compassion for them and without judging them. And this is a way that you can make wise choices about who to associate with in your life. Because while the choices that an individual makes is affecting them. So if an individual chose to kill, steal, have sexual misconduct, lie, or take substances that cause heedlessness, that's affecting them but your choice to be associated with them and be their friend or be their life partner or their employee or their coworker, that's what's going to affect you. So you need to look at your relationships and determine, are there any relationships that you currently have that you're being affected by those individuals' unwise choices? Because if an individual, say, is into substances that cause heedlessness, they're most likely going to get in difficulties with lawyers, in the legal system and needing to have all kinds of financial obligations being met because they're probably using their finances to support a habit of substances. And now they might look to you to try to get money in order to cover those types of things. And this is going to really weigh on your ability to provide for your basic necessities. And there's other impacts like this too. If you have a certain life partner or friends or individuals around you that are doing these unwholesome things. So you need to learn how to make wise choices and choose to move on in certain relationships rather than cling to it. So there are certain relationships that you might have right now in your life that now you're on the path to enlightenment. You might just choose to move on, that there's too many difficulties to work out and you're not really committed to the relationship and you might just move on from that relationship. You don't need to tell them necessarily. You can just gradually move on. There's other relationships that you might be more committed to, and there might be hostility and difficulties in that relationship, but you're more committed to it and you like to work it out. And you'll figure out a way as you go, as you're improving the condition of your mind, that you can work out this relationship. Maybe your mom or your dad or brothers or sisters or a life partner or your children or something like this. But then there's new relationships that you will create on the path to enlightenment where you'll choose wisely to have wholesome friends and wholesome associates. And then you'll only be loving and kind and compassionate in these relationships. And you'll only ever see that coming back to you in those relationships. So these are things to consider as you're making your way forward on the path to enlightenment. So, let me know what questions you guys have here, and I'll help you guys to understand this particular chapter. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. It looks like Sophia has a question here. What does Ananda mean? Ananda is one of the Buddha's closest students. He was either the cousin or the brother-in-law of the Buddha. And he was very close to the Buddha throughout his whole teaching career. So the Buddha taught for 45 years from the age of 35 to 80. And Ananda was the individual that was with him throughout that entire time. And he ultimately got to enlightenment shortly after the death of the Buddha. And he had a very profound memory to be able to remember the teachings. So after the Buddha died, he's the one who's credited with helping the first council of enlightened beings to write down the teachings and document the teachings of the Buddha. So after the Buddha died, about three months later, 500 enlightened beings came together, which Ananda was included in that, and they documented the teachings of the Buddha. So a lot of the discourses that you see of the Buddha, he's going to reference Ananda, which is his closest student, because Ananda is recounting the teaching. And since he's recounting it, and it's being documented, Ananda shows up in a lot of the teachings. Let's see if we have any other questions. It looks like we have some questions coming in here on YouTube. Thank you so much teacher David for introducing me to Buddhist teachings a while ago. Satu, Satu, Sattu. Okay you're welcome. Pleased to help you. I guess you're coming from Britain or the UK. Nice to see you. I'm going to check to see if we have any other questions here. I don't see any so we'll move on to the next one which is chapter 36 here this one is titled the cycle of rebirth without discoverable beginning for beings hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving an eon is long monk it is not easy to count it and say it is so many years or so many hundreds of years or so many thousands of years or so many hundreds of thousands of years. Suppose, monk, there was a great stone mountain, a yojana long, which is 12 to 15 kilometers, a yojana wide, and a yojana high, without holes or crevices, one solid mass of rock. At the end of every hundred years, a man would stroke it once with a piece of kasan cloth, That great stone mountain might be this effort be worn away and eliminated, but the eon would still not have come to an end. So long is an eon, monk. And of eons of such length, we have wandered through so many eons, so many hundreds of eons, so many thousands of eons, so many hundreds of thousands of eons. For what reason? Because, monks, this cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned by beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance, unknowing of true reality, infettered fettered by craving. It is enough to experience fading away of strong feelings towards all conditions, enough to become free from strong feelings towards them, enough to be liberated from them. Okay, so you guys are going to see a whole bunch of teachings here where the buddha is just talking a little bit about the cycle of rebirth when somebody's first starting to learn the path to enlightenment i suggest that they set the cycle of rebirth to the side but still understand that it's there and it exists and that at some point in the future you might need to approach this initially it's best to focus on The Three Universal Truths, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, and your meditation training. The core central teachings to be able to help you make your way on the path to enlightenment and really get started with a foundation. But at some point in the future, maybe a year and a half, two years in, you might need to look at the cycle of rebirth. In terms of this book series and the programs that I teach, I introduce students to it a bit in volume one, but it's not until volume 11 of the 13 books that we really explore it in depth. And it's volume 11 for a reason, because it's wise to kind of set it to the side. But it's important to know that this exists because as you're lifting the pollution out of your mind, it's not uncommon for individuals to be able to see their past lives and observe their past lives. So if you start having residual memories of past lives and you didn't understand the cycle of rebirth and that you have been reborn countless times in the past, you might feel like you're going crazy or you might feel... Kind of lost and shaken up and unstable in the world when you know what you've experienced in this life but yet you're having all these memories from previous lives so as you lift pollution out of your mind you might start observing certain memories and you might have already experienced some of those things without even realizing it if you've experienced deja vu which is having residual memories from past lives and there's other things that you might have encountered that you just didn't know what they were and this is residual memories from past lives So here the Buddha is kind of introducing you a bit to help you understand about the beginning of the cycle of rebirth is undiscoverable, meaning the beginning of time. Right now, we have scientists who pretty much date the beginning of the world about 4.5 billion years ago. You see some people that date it earlier or some people that date it later, but the general consensus is about 4.5 billion years. But that date is only as good as the next discovery. All we need to do is discover one fossil that's older than 4.5 billion years and then our best estimate actually changes so here the buddha is saying that the beginning of when this whole life really started is undiscoverable and that you've been countless beings in the past that you've been roaming and wandering through this continuous cycle of rebirth he talks about many different eons and he talks about an eon as an immeasurable amount of time and that there's been countless eons during the lifetime of the buddha One of the highest numbers that they could really count to is basically the hundred thousands, right? They didn't invent the number million yet until about the last 500 years is when we invented the number one million, and then we started counting from there. We now have one billion, we have trillion, we have other years beyond that. So here, the Buddha is describing an eon, longer than so many hundreds of thousands of years. So when we think about 4.5 billion years to the Buddha, this is multiple eons. He already knew 2,500 years ago before we even had scientific research, that this world has been here for many, many, many billions of years, but they didn't have the word billion to be able to describe it back then. So he used the word eon, which is this immeasurable amount of time because they couldn't count beyond 999,900 or what have you, that they didn't have the word million during his lifetime. And he's describing this eon as being so long and so, Enormous and immeasurable that if there's this mountain that's made out of stone that's 12 to 15 kilometers high, 12 to 15 kilometers wide, and 12 to 15 kilometers deep, that if every 100 years somebody rubbed the mountain with one stroke of the cloth, if you continued to rub that mountain every 100 years, that this mountain would be worn away and the eon would still be continuing. So it would take an enormous amount of time to rub this mountain. Every 100 years you just rub it one time and then add all those up for 12 to 15 kilometers and he's saying the eon would still exist. So it's a really long, immeasurable amount of time. And he's saying that beings have roamed and wandered through this cycle of rebirth for so many eons. And this is understandable because if the earth has existed for 4.5 billion years, which is our best estimate, there's been beings that have existed throughout all this time, going all the way back to dinosaurs and even before that. Now, human beings have evolved as we kind of understand within the last 200,000 years or so, and we've gradually evolved from there. But the beginning of the cycle of rebirth, the Buddha is saying is undiscoverable. And the reason why he's saying that is because sometimes people really get caught up in, you know, when did the world start? How did we get here? Why are we here? And all these other different questions. But if you understand that the beginning of the world, the cycle of rebirth, is undiscoverable, what the Buddha is saying is just focus on getting to enlightenment. He's saying the beginning of the world is undiscoverable but it's enough to experience the fading away of strong feelings, which is the reduction of discontentedness. It's enough to become free from strong feelings, that is getting to enlightenment. And it's enough to become liberated from them, which is getting to enlightenment. So he's saying, don't concern yourself with when the world started and how you got here and all these other ancillary details that are undiscoverable. Instead, realize that you're in the human realm right now. Your mind is discontent. You're experiencing anger, frustration, irritation, and other discontent feelings. Focus on eliminating those and getting to enlightenment. That'll be enough for you. You don't need to figure out all these things in the past that are unimportant at this point in time because you're in existence. You have a discontent mind and you need to get out of this cycle of rebirth and escape it. But you can't do that if you spend all your time worrying about the beginning of the world. So let me know what questions you guys have on this particular teaching. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. Oh, here we go. Here's one in Facebook. Hello, teacher. Are we able to remember past lives through dreams? Yes, that's one of the ways that some people can observe past lives. You can have memories of past lives through dreams. You can have it just in daily life. You can be going about your day and residual memories can be rising up. Uh, You can even get to the point where you're even talking as if you are those beings from the past, where someone nowadays might describe that as multiple personality disorder disorder but it's actually an individual who's remembering their past lives and speaking as if they are that person from the past. So these are all different ways that it can occur. All right, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere else, so I'm going to move on and just remind you guys in Zoom that if you'd like to read at any point, you're welcome to. Just raise your hand and let me know that you're interested and I'll call on you. So here, chapter number 37, the stream of tears in this cycle of rebirth is more than the water in the four great oceans. Good, good monks, it is good that you understand the teachings taught by me in such a way. The stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, this alone is more than... Than the water in the four great oceans. For a long time, monks, you have experienced the death of a mother. As you have experienced this, weeping and wailing, because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, the stream of tears that you have shed is more than the water in the four great oceans. For a long time, monks, you have experienced the death of a father, the death of a brother, the death of a sister, the death of a son, the death of a daughter, the loss of relatives, the loss of wealth, the loss through illness, as you have experienced this weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, the stream of tears that you have shed is more than the water in the four great oceans. For what reason? Because, monks, this cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance, unknowing of true reality, infettered by craving. It is enough to experience fading away of strong feelings towards all conditions, enough to become free from strong feelings towards them, enough to be liberated from them. So again, the Buddha is giving us another teaching on the cycle of rebirth and just kind of introducing you to help you understand that The beginning of the cycle of rebirth is undiscoverable, like what we talked about before, and to just stay focused on getting to enlightenment. But he's adding some more context here to help you understand the stream of tears that you've cried over the course of all these countless lives is more water than all the water in all the seas. If you've done any scuba diving or snorkeling or you've been out in the sea, there's an enormous amount of water in the sea. And what he's saying is that all the tears that you've cried during this countless rebirths is more water than all of that. And perhaps you've experienced a certain amount of crying and misery and despair in this life as well. And you know that that's uncomfortable to experience. And you can harness that and make it motivation to help you get to enlightenment in this life. the buddhist explaining that you're united with the disagreeable so if you have cravings in your mind you're going to have certain things that are disagreeable to you and if you experience those disagreeable things you might cry you might weep and you might wail and if you're separated from the things that are agreeable things that are agreeable to you are the things that you have cravings for because if you have craving and you get what you want you'll get pleasant feelings those conditioned feelings of happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, exhilaration, euphoria. But if you're separated from the things that you find agreeable, you might potentially weep and wail and cry. Same thing if you're united with the disagreeable. In this crying, in these tears, the Buddha is explaining that it's more water than all the four great oceans. And this is helping you to paint a picture of how many countless past lives that you've actually had. And then he explains all this loss, this loss of relatives, which also probably led to a certain amount of weeping and wailing as well. By the time you get to enlightenment, you can experience the death of somebody close to you and you won't grieve anymore. It's not because you don't love them. Love isn't what's causing the grief and the sadness and the weeping and wailing as the buddha is describing here it's the craving desire attachment wanting to keep mom or dad or grandma and grandpa or other people close to you it's wanting to keep them permanently there's craving desire attachment you can get to a point where you've trained your mind that you can have appreciation and gratitude when somebody dies and you don't have to be feeling like somebody pulled the carpet out from under you or chopped you off at the knees so if you have experienced countless rebirths in the past that means you were unenlightened in all those past lives and as all these people died and you lost your wealth and all these other things that the buddha talked about you would weep and wail and cry as a result and the goal is to get out of all of that and get to the point where the mind's purified. And now, if somebody dies close to you, you'll appreciate the time that you spend with them and have gratitude for the time that you spend with them. You will need to feel like somebody chopped you off at the knees. What questions do you guys have on this particular chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So I will move on to the next one, which is chapter 38. This is another teaching on the cycle of rebirth as well having experienced the same thing in this long course. Monks, this cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance, unknowing of true reality, infettered fettered by craving. Whenever you see anyone in misfortune, in misery, you can conclude we too have experienced the same thing in this long course. Whenever you see anyone happy and fortunate, you can conclude we too have experienced the same thing in this long course. It is not easy, monks, to find a being who, in this long course, has not previously been your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter. For what reason? Because, monks, this cycle of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance, unknowing of true reality, and fettered by craving. It is enough to experience fading away of strong feelings towards all conditions, enough to become free from strong feelings towards them, enough to be liberated from them. Okay, let me explain this to you. There's a lot of really great teachings here in this very you know, basic, kind of straightforward one page that the Buddha is describing here. Of course, the first thing he's talking about is that the cycle of rebirth is not discoverable, the beginning of it at least, which is what he's been describing earlier. And beings are continuing to have ignorance and craving, and that's what keeps them roaming and wandering in the cycle of rebirth. He's saying, because you've been reborn so many times, Anything that you see anybody experiencing that is misfortunate or anything that they're experiencing that is miserable, you also have experienced that same thing as you've been reborn in these constant rebirths. And where this is actually really helping you is that it can help you to cultivate loving kindness and compassion for other beings. If you can see somebody who's maybe having addiction to substances or homeless or uh, some other challenge or difficulty in this life, you can be more understanding of what they've experienced and you can have more loving kindness, which is active goodwill or compassion, which is concern for their misfortune. If you understand that you too have experienced those same things, it can help you eliminate indifference. Whereas if you see somebody suffering and you feel you're indifferent then just understand that you've experienced those same things too. And rather than being indifferent to somebody else's misfortune or misery, understand that they're going through some challenges and some struggles and arise loving kindness and compassion. And then the same thing, the Buddha says that whenever you see somebody experiencing something that's happy or fortunate, you can conclude too that you've experienced those same things throughout this long cycle of rebirth and where this helps you is that if there's certain cravings desires attachments in your mind of things that you want and you feel like your mind is chasing after them you can conclude that you've actually already had those things so if you see somebody who's really rich and wealthy and famous or maybe they have amazing possessions maybe they have a lamborghini or a yacht or something like this and you're really wanting those things you can conclude you've already had those things, either in this life or some previous life. So if you see someone driving a Lamborghini and you're like, oh, I wish I had that Lamborghini. I want that so badly. Well, you either had that in this life, and if you didn't have it in this life, what the Buddha is saying, well, you had it in a previous life. You've already had these fortunate things happen for you. So this can be a way to help you eliminate certain cravings if you realize you've already had these things. Then he talks about how it would be very challenging for you to encounter a being in this cycle of rebirth and in this existence who has not previously been your mother your father your brother your sister your son or your daughter what this helps you to do is helps you to also arise loving kindness and compassion for all beings because when you see that mosquito that mosquito is your mother, or your father, or your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter. Or you go out and you have a food server who's helping you to deliver your food at a restaurant. Think of this person as your mother, father, brother, sister, your son, or your daughter. Here in Thailand, when we speak Thai, and we go out in Chiang Mai, We actually refer to people in that way i can see somebody that i've never met before they could be working at a restaurant and i might call them big brother or big sister or little brother or little sister this helps you to arise loving kindness and compassion and it also helps you to build trust because if you've been taught that strangers are bad and you're kind of on the lookout for strangers and there's enemies around you that's really difficult to walk through life that way, constantly looking out for strangers. But instead, if you can change your perspective and realize that these people that you haven't met yet, these are your family members that you just haven't met. They were family members in a past life and you just haven't met them yet. So you can smile at somebody. You can be joyful and cheerful with these family members rather than looking down and feeling like you can't trust people and looking for enemies and lacking confidence and things like this. Hold your head up high. Have confidence. Be joyful. Be bright. Understand that anybody that you encounter today, whether it's a human being, an animal, or any other being, that these beings have previously been your relatives at some point. And this can help you bring forth your loving kindness and compassion more. Of course, you're going to need meditation and other teachings to be able to do that. But if you change your perspective Get rid of this conditioning. If you've had your mind conditioned to think of people as strangers and strangers are bad and they might do harmful things to you and they're enemies, instead, you can uncondition your mind in this way by looking at all people in the world and all animals and all beings as your relatives. Let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom or raise your hand and Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, we have Mayu Lee is asking a question here on Facebook. When I see misfortune of others, I get really sad and sometimes have tears. Is this my craving and attachment? Yes, if you're experiencing discontentedness, which the sadness is, then that's from craving, desire, attachment. This is the mind craving for the world to be a certain way and wanting people to all be well and healthy. So there's The indifference, which we were talking about before, where someone's just indifferent to other people's suffering, that's one side. But then the other side is having craving, desire, attachment, wanting everybody to be peaceful with a longing, with a yearning. What you would like to do is come to the middle where you can have concern for their misfortune. Because if you have worry or sadness, This is due to you being able to see all the problems and having certain cravings. But if you can bring your mind to the middle, where not only do you understand the problems, but you understand the solutions. The solutions are these teachings of the Buddha. And this is why when you see someone who's having misfortune, you can't solve their problems. You know, when you see potentially a homeless person or someone who's having misfortune in that way, you might wanna rush in there and fix everything for them. You could give this person you know, thousands of dollars, but it's not gonna fix their problems if they don't have more wisdom on board. They need wisdom to be able to make wise decisions. That's what led them to that particular situation. There were certain decisions that they made that ended up with them being homeless, for example. So you could help an individual, but helping an individual with maybe financial support it also needs wisdom along with it. If we just gave people financial support and that's it, then it wouldn't help them to rise above any kind of poverty or misfortunes that they're having so you would like to understand that there's solutions to these problems that people are experiencing and the only way for them to get out of that misfortune is for them to gain wisdom and make wiser decisions and this can help you to let go of your cravings wanting the world to be a certain way and realize that each individual is experiencing the results of their decisions and then as loving kind compassionate individuals who practice generosity where we can help people we help them But in some situations, we're not going to be able to help an individual. And always remember that helping an individual means that that individual needs to cultivate wisdom on their own. They need to choose to get more wisdom. Without them cultivating wisdom, they're not going to fully solve any challenges or difficulties that they're having. All right. Great discussion here, guys. I don't see any other questions. I'm going to move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 39. In the agreeable and pleasurable world, this craving arises and establishes itself. The eye in the world is agreeable and pleasurable. The ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind in the world is agreeable and pleasurable. In, there, this craving arises and establishes. The eye in the world is agreeable and pleasurable. The ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind in the world is agreeable and pleasurable. And there, this craving comes to be abandoned. There, its elimination comes about. Forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, mental objects. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, mind consciousness. Eye contact, ear contact, nose contact, tongue contact, body contact mind contact, feeling born of eye contact, ear contact, nose contact, tongue contact, body contact, mind contact, the perception of forms, of sounds, of odors, of flavors, of physical objects, of mental objects, volition, choices, decisions, in regard to forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, mental objects, Thinking of forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, mental objects. Pondering on forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, and mental objects. The craving for forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, mental objects. For each of the above. in the world is agreeable and pleasurable. And there this craving arises and establishes itself. In the world is agreeable and pleasurable, and there this craving comes to be abandoned. There its elimination comes about. So, what the Buddha is starting to point to here is what's called the six sense bases. This is something that you're going to learn about in the next book. Volume nine is titled The Six Sense Bases. Here, you're going to explore this. What this helps you to understand is the fetter or the pollution or the taint or the defilement of central desire. You start understanding that this craving-desire attachments that are in the mind, the way that the mind is longing and yearning is through the sense bases of the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind itself. The Buddha is explaining to you what you're experiencing as a human being and why your mind is discontent. That the mind is longing and yearning with central desire through the six sense bases these six sense bases are what's called the internal sense bases eye ear nose tongue the body and the mind and then there's the external sense bases the external sense bases is what the eye comes in contact with which is the forms sounds odors flavors physical objects and mental objects so the eye comes in contact with forms The ear comes in contact with the sounds. The nose comes in contact with the odors. The tongue comes in contact with flavors. The body comes in contact with physical objects. And the mind comes in contact with mental objects. This is called the external sense basis. Then when the mind is aware of those things, we call that eye consciousness. So there's the eye, which is the physical organ. Then there's the form, which is the physical form. Like right now you're looking at your computer screen or the tablet or your phone or whatever it is. And now you're establishing eye consciousness. The eye consciousness is the awareness that the eye has of the actual form. So these two things of the eye and the form are coming together in order to have eye consciousness, which is the awareness of the form. And now those three things combine: the eye, the form, and eye consciousness, which is the awareness, this is what we call eye contact, okay? These are things that you're going to start to understand when we study the six sense bases. Now when there's eye contact, that's where the feeling arises in the mind that there's these discontent feelings based on your cravings, desires, attachments. And then there's certain perceptions or volitional formations and so forth. And the Buddha is explaining how craving comes to be because you experience things through the six sense bases that are agreeable and pleasurable. And this is how the craving arises. But then you're going to need to abandon the conditionality of these feelings, the conditioned, pleasant feelings, conditioned, painful feelings, and the conditioned feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. By eliminating the craving-desire attachment, i.e., the central desire in the mind, longing and yearning through these sense bases, that's what's ultimately gonna eliminate your cravings. So this is a little bit of an introduction to that, but we're gonna get into this more deeply when we study the six sense bases in the next book. So if this is something that right now you don't quite understand, it's okay. You can ask questions if you like and I'll help you. But in the next book, we will explore this a lot more deeply. If you're starting to understand this, then you're starting to understand central desire. Looks like we have a question here from Francis on Zoom. Can we send loving kindness and compassion to the misfortunate person? It's not possible for you to send anything to anybody because the goal of this practice isn't for you to change other people. You can't meditate and actually send something to somebody and have them change. This is a big misunderstanding in the Buddhist world that some people think that when they're meditating with something like loving kindness, that they're sending loving kindness to another person. You can't send anything through your meditation to change other people. If that was possible, there wouldn't be any homeless people. There wouldn't be any prisons or rapes or murders because people would get together and just change other people through our meditation. But that's not possible. But what you can do is you can cultivate loving kindness and compassion in your mind, so that then when you come into contact with people who are having misfortune, you will be more loving, kind, and compassionate. That's what the Buddha teaches us to do. And that's what is actually possible, where the ability to send things to other people isn't actually possible. So let me see if you guys have any questions on the chapters. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions there. So we'll move on to the next one which is chapter 40. this is titled transcending physical pain by avoiding mental pain monks the uninstructed worldling feels a pleasant feeling a painful feeling and a feeling that is neither painful nor pleasant the instructed noble disciple too feels a pleasant feeling a painful feeling and a feeling that is neither painful nor pleasant therein monks. What is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling? Venerable Sir, our teachings are rooted in the perfectly enlightened one, guided by the perfectly enlightened one, taken refuge in the perfectly enlightened one. It would be good if the perfectly enlightened one would clear up the meaning of this statement. Having heard it from him, the monks will remember it. Then listen and attend closely, monks. I will speak. Yes, venerable sir, the monks replied. The perfectly enlightened one said this. Monks, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, he sorrows, grieves, and has displeasure. He weeps, beating his breast, and becomes distraught. He feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a man with a dart, and then they would strike him immediately afterwards with a second dart, so that the man would feel a feeling caused by two darts. So too, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, he feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. Being contacted by the same painful feeling, he has aversion towards it, When he has aversion towards painful feelings, the underlying tendency to aversion towards painful feelings lies behind this. Being contacted by a painful feeling, he seeks excitement in central pleasure. For what reason? Because the uninstructed worldling does not know of any escape from painful feelings other than central pleasure. When he seeks excitement in central pleasure, The underlying tendency to crave for pleasant feelings lies behind this. He does not understand, as it really is, the cause in the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of these feelings. When he does not understand these things, the underlying tendency to ignorance, unknowing of true reality, in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feelings, lies behind this. If he feels a pleasant feeling, he feels it attached. If he feels a painful feeling, he feels it attached. If he feels a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he feels it attached. This, monks, is called an uninstructed worldling who is attached to birth, aging, and death, who is attached to sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair, who is attached to discontentedness, I say. There's more here, but let me explain to you what's going on so far. The Buddha is explaining about an individual who is not on the path to enlightenment. The Buddha is calling this person an uninstructed worldling because they're not learning, they're not gaining instruction. And the worldling part is because they're holding on to the world. So this uninstructed worldling or an individual who's not on the path to enlightenment, they're going to experience pain of the physical body in different way than a person who's actually training their mind. So here the Buddha is explaining that an uninstructed worldling, an individual who's not on the path to enlightenment, when they have a painful feeling, meaning there's a physical pain in the body, that this individual is going to have certain sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair, weeping, beating their breast. An individual is going to experience a bodily feeling and a mental one. So if you've ever stumped your toe and right away you got angry and frustrated and irritated and all this discontentedness arose, that's because you had a lack of instruction. You had a lack of wisdom. You weren't gaining the understanding of how to train your mind. So you experienced the bodily pain and you experienced the mental pain as well, the mental anguish. And this actually heightens the physical pain that when you don't understand the teachings of the Buddha and you haven't trained in them, you're gonna experience the bodily pain of stumping the toe, but you're also gonna experience this mental anguish which heightens the actual pain. And the Buddha is describing this as being struck with two darts, that you have these two darts that are hitting you, a painful one, which is the physical pain, and then a mental one, which is the mental anguish. And what's happening when this is occurring is that when you stump your toe, What you understand is you understand craving, desire, attachment, and you're craving for the body to be permanently comfortable. So right away, that craving that is triggered, it arises this mental anguish. And because somebody is untrained, they don't understand that this is occurring. And if you've ever stomped your toe and started cussing or blaming other people or looking around the world to try to blame somebody, this is what you experienced. And the Buddha is explaining that the only way an uninstructed worldling, an individual who's off the path to enlightenment, knows how to escape from painful feelings is to have central pleasures. So if you've ever had a really hard day at work, and you came home and turned to alcohol or drugs or sex or gambling or some other thing like this in order to get your pleasant feelings, that's the only way that an uninstructed worldling or a person off the path to enlightenment knows how to get back to something that is somewhat comfortable. So if you're experiencing mental anguish or painful feelings in the mind, you might notice in the unenlightened mind that you have a craving for sensual pleasures and you go after things that you have cravings for, and you might chase after those things. And that's the only way you know how to get back to something comfortable, which is those conditioned, pleasant feelings. But this doesn't actually solve the problem, because as long as you allow your mind to keep craving and keep getting those conditioned, pleasant feelings, you'll continue to experience conditioned, painful feelings either. And the whole reason why this is occurring is because an individual who is off the path to enlightenment doesn't understand that the cause of their discontentedness is craving, desire, attachment. They don't understand the disappearance, which is the universal truth of impermanence. They don't understand the gratification, which is the central desire. They don't understand the danger, which is the conditioned, pleasant feelings, and they don't understand the escape, which is the Eightfold Path. That's the way to escape from all of this discontentedness. If you keep allowing your mind to crave and cling and chase after pleasant feelings, you're never going to eliminate the painful feelings, and this is all occurring because of the underlying tendency to ignorance or unknowing of true reality, that when you see the truth for yourself with wisdom, you can see what's going on, and you can escape all of this. And the Buddha is saying that as long as someone is uninstructed and experiencing these things, they're still attached to birth, aging, and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. They're still experiencing discontentedness because they're uninstructed. So now he's going to explain what the instructed noble disciple experiences. This is a person who's on the path to enlightenment, who is practicing the teachings closely. They're not enlightened yet, but they're instructed. They understand, they have some wisdom about the path to enlightenment. Monks, when the instructed noble disciple is contacted by a painful feeling, he does not sorrow, grieve, or have displeasure, he does not weep beating his breast and become distraught. He feels one feeling, a bodily one, not a mental one. So here the Buddha is saying someone who's instructed, when they experience physical pain, they don't experience the mental anguish with it. And in this case, what you'll notice is when your mind's more trained, your mental pain is gone. So therefore, the bodily pain is muted. It's very insignificant. So where you stumped your toe in the past and it hurt like crazy and you had all this mental anguish to go along with it, which heightened the pain, as you train your mind more and more, if you stump your toe, you're going to have the bodily pain. That's there for a reason. You need that. you're not going to have the mental anguish so the physical pain is actually going to be muted and it's going to be less and it's going to be disappearing a lot quicker because you don't have that mental anguish to go along with it suppose they were to strike a man with a dart but they would not strike him immediately afterwards with a second dart so that the man would feel a feeling caused by one dart only so too When the instructed noble disciple is contacted by a painful feeling, he feels one feeling, a bodily one, not a mental one. Being contacted by that same painful feeling, he has no aversion towards it. Since he has no aversion towards painful feelings, the underlying tendency to aversion towards painful feelings does not lie behind this. Being contacted by a painful feeling, he does not Seek excitement and central pleasure. So what he's saying here is that when you have your bodily pain as you're instructed and you actually have guidance and wisdom, that you don't immediately start craving permanent comfort in the body. You don't crave this central pleasure to get out of this painful bodily situation because you understand the problem. You don't immediately have craving arise. For what reason? because the instructed noble disciple knows of an escape from painful feelings other than sensual pleasures, which is to eliminate craving-desire attachment. Since he does not seek excitement in sensual pleasure, the underlying tendency to crave for pleasant feelings does not lie behind this. He understands as it really is the cause and the disappearance the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of these feelings. Since he understands these things, the underlying tendency to ignorance, unknowing of true reality in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feelings does not lie behind this. If he feels a pleasant feeling, he feels it detached. If he feels a pleasant feeling, he feels it detached. If he feels a painful feeling he feels it detached if he feels a neither painful nor pleasant feeling he feels it detached this monks is called a noble disciple who is detached from birth aging and death who is detached from sorrow grief pain displeasure and despair who is detached from discontentedness i say this monks is the distinction the disparity the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling. The wise one learned does not feel the pleasant and painful mental feeling. This is the great difference between the wise one and the worldling. For the learned one who has comprehended the teachings, who clearly sees this world and the next, desirable things do not provoke his mind, towards the undesired he has no aversion for him attraction and repulsion no longer exist both have been extinguished brought to an end having known the dust free sorrowless state the transcender of existence rightly understands so here the buddha is explaining what i just shared which is by the time you're getting closer and closer to enlightenment the wise one the learned one does not feel the mental anguish, the conditioned feelings. This is the difference between someone who's untrained and someone who's actually trained. The wise one being trained, the worldly being untrained. And then he says, for the learned one who has comprehended the teachings, who sees this world in the next, meaning you understand the five realms, that you've already confirmed the cycle of rebirth. You know that this cycle of rebirth is true desirable things do not provoke his mind. Towards the undesired, he has no aversion. So this means the desirable things, meaning you're not tempted by things like sexual misconduct, by intoxicants and things like this. Towards the undesired, you don't have aversion. So you don't push things away. So when you hit your toe on the table, you don't have this aversion towards that pain, you just understand that okay, the body's experiencing this pain, you need to experience it, you should have made wiser decisions, you should have turned on the lights, you should have looked around and checked out what was going on around you, but now that the body's experiencing this pain, you just deal with it and you just essentially understand that the body's gonna be in pain for a temporary period and then it's gonna be passed. You don't try to push this away and you don't try to crave for things to escape that because that's not gonna help you escape it. For him, attraction and repulsion no longer exist. Both have been extinguished, brought to an end. So you no longer have this craving and you no longer have this pushing away or this aversion. Having known the dust-free, sorrowless state, the transcender of existence rightly understands. So now you understand the path to enlightenment and that this is the way to escape the mental anguish is to not have central desire and allow the mind to keep craving what questions do you guys have on this particular chapter okay francis go ahead and ask your question
3: okay i have a question from the previous chapter uh about the sensual desire thing mm-hmm um, as human beings, we live in a world where there are so many things we can do or eat or not. Um, I just want to know how in the world can we not be attached to uh, some essential pleasure. For example, let's say I, once a week I I will have some Chinese pastry uh, for my breakfast. So I'm looking forward to having it with my family together at the outing. Um, does that constitute? attachment or yearning and longing for uh, this uh, chinese pastry uh could you just share your thoughts on this
1: sure so it's a matter of training the mind to understand how to enjoy something the action of enjoying it without getting a conditioned pleasant feeling so for example what you're talking about it's not the object of the pastry that is the attachment it's the mind longing yearning for it so have there been any situations where you guys had plans to get these pastries or spend time together as a family and maybe you weren't able to do it maybe it rained or you got a flat tire or maybe the bakery where you get the pastry didn't have them that particular day If you have craving, desire, attachment in that situation, you're going to be frustrated or irritated or annoyed that you couldn't have that particular situation occur. But if you were like, okay, well, there's no pastries today, that's fine. Uh, Let's go do something else and you are just as peaceful and just as content with the pastry as without it, then you know that the mind isn't craving it. So you can enjoy things as an enlightened being and on your path to enlightenment. You just need to learn how to not crave and desire and be attached. And this is how you learn how to enjoy things without being attached. So you need to observe your mind and see is there any agitation, annoyance, irritation when you don't get that pastry. And remember, it's not the pastry that is the issue. So, once you eliminate your craving desire attachment for the pastry you'll be able to either have the pastry and be enjoying that time with your family in the pastry and then in situations where you can't do it you'll still be able to enjoy that too you'll still be able to be peaceful and joyful that's what it means to practice non-attachment
3: okay, I guess we need to be aware of our mental states Yeah, at the time um, I, I think I understand so actually if that uh, when she saw of, uh, unpleasant feelings or, let's say, or anguish feelings came along and said, oh, the shop is closed, um, rather than beating myself up and all that and complaining and whining and everything, we can just mm-hmm. say a mental state, okay, it's okay we go somewhere else and eat something else. Would it be something I can do?
1: Exactly. That's what it means to understand the universal truth of impermanence, that, Every time you show up to the shop, it's not going to be open. It's impossible. Every time you show up to the shop, it's not going to have... Your pastry, because they're going to be sold out sometimes, or they're not going to have the ingredients to make the pastry, or what have you. So, you, if you understand the universal truth of impermanence and you're not craving permanence, when you show up to the shop and they don't have what you are interested in, or the shop's closed, you can maintain your peace and maintain your joy. But if you have craving, when you show up to the shop and it's closed, you'll complain, you'll get angry, you'll get frustrated. Or when you show up and they don't have your pastry, you'll get angry, or frustrated, or irritated because you're having craving, So whenever you have discontentedness, there is a craving there, at least one. And that's the red light on the dashboard of your car telling you, hey, Francis, you've got a craving here. You need to investigate this and you need to eliminate it. So you need to be very observant with mindfulness of any discontentedness. And then when you see the discontentedness, apply right effort to cut it off and let it go and then you need to investigate that and try to uncover what the craving was so you can train your mind to eliminate it.
3: Yeah, I guess we need to be aware of, uh, they say guard our sixth end door, yeah?
1: Yes. All these
3: uh, this, this things, okay, I got it, thank you so much.
1: Perfect, wonderful, Francis. Okay, I didn't see any other questions as I was looking, but I'm gonna look one more time just to be sure. Okay, yeah, I'm not seeing any questions, so we'll just move to the last chapter for today, which is Chapter 41, and this is going to complete this book, Volume 8. Chapter 41 is the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the path to enlightenment. I don't usually teach it or even read it in the Canon and English study group because I teach it very thoroughly in the group learning program, and then by the time students get here, usually I just open up to any questions that you guys might have. Between this Sunday, which is tomorrow, and next Sunday, I'm going to be teaching the entire Eightfold Path in the group learning program, Sunday at 9 a.m. from the temple and Sunday at 9 p.m. here at home. So you guys can either tune into that live or you can watch the recordings to be able to learn the Eightfold Path. But here, the Buddha is sharing, in his words, the entire Eightfold Path. And this is something that you're going to need to know inside and out, backwards and forwards, up, down, left, right, in order to get to enlightenment. You're going to need to learn this and revisit it multiple times, dialing it in closer and closer in your life. This is the complete perfect plan of how to get to enlightenment. And studying with the original words of the Buddha is what's going to help you to be able to understand what he taught and how to dial this in closer and closer to your life. So, your life practice is the Eightfold Path. That is your life practice. So, if you guys have questions on any of these steps right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, or right concentration I will help you to understand them more closely. Just let me know what your questions are through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand in Zoom and I'll help you to understand. And if you haven't studied this yet, then I suggest that you tune in on. Sunday, tomorrow, and next Sunday, and or watch the recordings so that you can learn this and revisit this multiple times for your practice. So let me know if you guys have any questions on this. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So what I'm going to do then is just in class, as I typically do by thanking all of you guys for studying, because the more that you study and you get dedicated to learning and practicing the teachings, it's helping you to cause less and less harm in the world. So you're experiencing less and less harm. It's benefiting you. It's benefiting others because they're experiencing less and less harm from you. And that means you're also benefiting all of humanity because humanity is becoming a more loving, kind, gentle, and peaceful place to exist. So I always like to thank students for having dedication and diligence to learning and practicing the teachings and also invite you to next week's class where we're going to be in volume nine, which is the six sense Bases. We're going to be studying volumes one through 10. Tomorrow in our group learning program, we're going to be studying the Four Noble Truths. So you're welcome to join for that. That's where you can establish right view and have this breakthrough to understanding what's causing your discontent feelings so that you can actually eliminate them. And then on Wednesday, I'm going to be starting the first session of our four-part series on Buddhist chanting. So if you'd like to learn the Buddhist chants that I do before meditation and after meditation, you can tune in live either 9 a.m. or 9 p.m., or you can watch the recordings and learn how to do the Buddhist chanting. So thank you all for joining for today's class. We'll see you guys in a future class. Have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you
0: for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com.